Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Back when we did our podcast on Executive Order 9066 and the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, we very, very briefly mentioned the segregated units for soldiers of Japanese descent that were created during the war. And those were the 100th Infantry Battalion and the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, whose name we mangled as 422nd, thanks to a typo on my part. <laughs> so I had been planning to do an episode on the 442nd since then. We've gotten a lot of requests for it. We had gotten requests for it before that. When I finally got into the research, I realized you really cannot cover the 442nd without also talking about the 100th. And then I realized that their story is also connected into the story of the military intelligence service. All of those things have multiple common elements in their background and like multiple connecting points between them. So today we're going to talk about all three of those and how they played a critical role in American involvement in the war. Also, I just wanted to note that today's show is really about men, but there were also Japanese-American women who served in World War II, including in the Army Nurse Corps and the Women's Army Corps. Those began accepting Japanese women in February and November of 1943, respectively. So we're going to start with the Military Intelligence Service. Although the United States initially tried to avoid becoming involved in World War II, by 1940, it seemed increasingly likely that a war with Japan was coming. The American military had a clear need for military personnel who were fluent in Japanese, and such service members were in really short supply. Japanese Americans participated in the U.S. Armed Forces going back to the Spanish-American War in 1898, and there was an all-Japanese regiment of soldiers from Hawaii during World War I. But by the start of World War II, there weren't many Japanese Americans in the U.S. military in general, and even fewer actually knew how to speak Japanese. In 1941, the War Department realized the situation was dire, on top of the lack of Japanese speakers in the military, the war was approaching so quickly that there just would not be time to train people as linguists unless they were already very familiar with the language. So a small group of officials started advocating for the military to look to the children of Japanese immigrants to fill the gap. Known as Nisei, these were citizens of the United States who officials assumed would already be fluent in Japanese thanks to speaking Japanese at home with their parents and other family members and sometimes having been educated in Japan. This was a really controversial idea. Nisei were viewed with suspicion long before Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7th of 1941. And this was particularly true of Kibe, which was the term for Nisei who had been educated in Japan. Some people objected to Japanese Americans being allowed into the service at all, while others objected to the idea of the children of Japanese immigrants being allowed to handle really sensitive tasks like translating captured documents and interrogating Japanese prisoners. The idea also just wasn't as feasible as officials originally had hoped. After surveying thousands of Nisei about their knowledge of Japanese, it was determined that only about 3% of them were fluent enough to actually do the work. 
So, in late 1941, the War Department allocated $2,000 to establish the first Army Japanese language school in a small aircraft hangar at the Presidio in San Francisco, California. Nisei men between the ages of 21 and 36 had been required to register for the draft under the Selective Training and Service Act of 1940. The same was true of all other men of the same age living in the United States. When the language school was established, Nisei men were conscripted and screened before being sent for training. And the first training class began on November 1st, 1941, a little more than a month before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Of the 60 students enrolled in that first class, 58 were Japanese and two were white. Some of these students had some familiarity with Japanese already. Some of them were even fluent speakers. But even so, this training was grueling. Even those who were fluent in Japanese didn't typically know any Japanese military vocabulary or the military concepts and tactics that those words represented. The students who were already the most adept at Japanese helped the students who were struggling, but overall, everyone struggled with the military knowledge and terminology. In addition to the language and the military education, the students learned Japanese law and social customs. They learned about interrogation and interpretation, as well as as techniques for intercepting communications. And then, on top of all of that, they had to learn two other styles of written Japanese. One was a formal writing style called sorobun, which dates back to the Edo period and was used among Japanese royalty. The other was Sosho, which was a style of Japanese cursive writing that was apparently really difficult to master. For this first group of soldiers, classes began every morning at 8 a.m., and they ran for 10 hours. Lights Out was at 11 p.m., and many of the students studied from the time classes adjourned until Lights Out. Some kept studying well into the night, either hiding under their sheets with flashlights or studying in the latrine, which was lit at night. A handful of these students were ready to go overseas after about five months of training. And as for the rest, a quarter failed the program. The course of instruction was so demanding that only 45 of the initial 60 students actually graduated and went on to serve with the military intelligence service. After President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which removed Japanese Americans from the West Coast to concentration camps in other parts of the country the Military Intelligence Service School moved from the West Coast as well. It relocated to Camp Savage, Minnesota, and classes began there on June 1st, 1942. In 1944, it moved once again, this time to Fort Snelling, Minnesota, which had more room available for classroom facilities. The Military Intelligence Service Language School was at its largest in early 1946, with 160 instructors and 3,000 students. By June of that year, 6,000 people had graduated from the program. The Military Intelligence Service's work was absolutely critical to the American military effort in the Pacific and Asia. Before the end of the war, these men translated more than 18,000 captured Japanese documents, and they interrogated more than 10,000 prisoners of war. They wrote propaganda, they tried to convince Japanese soldiers to surrender, and they worked with civilians as the Allies took over territory that had previously been colonized by Japan. 
General Douglas MacArthur said that the Nisei work in the military intelligence service shortened the war by two years. Some of this work took place in combat, on the front lines. But aside from the dangers of combat, this work before the end of the war came at a huge risk to their lives. Japan considered them to be Japanese nationals, which made them traitors for working with the American military, which meant that they would be executed if they were captured. The MIS continued its work in Asia after the end of the war as well. Soldiers from the MIS were some of the first people on the scene after the surrender of Japan. They provided some of the first reports of what conditions were like in Japan, including the near-starvation conditions among its civilian population and the massive destruction from Allied firebombing campaigns and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. During the occupation of Japan after the war... Nisei members of the MIS made a cultural and linguistic bridge between the occupying American troops and the civilian population of Japan. They also served as translators during war crimes trials, and they worked in the Civil Censorship Detachment and the Counterintelligence Corps, as well as the Allied Translator and Interpreter Service and the Repatriation Program. In all of this, the Japanese-American soldiers were in a really complicated social position. In the United States, they were the targets of suspicion and racism, including from other members of the military. Especially after the signing of Executive Order 9066, they were criticized by some of the other Japanese Americans for working with the same government that was incarcerating them en masse. There's also the, like, the basic mental gymnastics to work around with the idea that uh, Japanese Americans were so dangerous that they needed to be moved away from the, the West Coast except for this group of Japanese-Americans also being moved away from the West Coast, specifically to do very specific work that was very sensitive for the military. Being deployed to Asia added its own layer of complication. Unlike the 100th Infantry Battalion and the 442nd Regimental Combat Team who served in Europe, the MIS was serving in a place where they were likely to see people who were known to them and their families, who sometimes were their family. As one example, Takajiro Higa, who was born in the United States but educated in Japan, reported encountering childhood friends and a former teacher during the Battle of Okinawa. During the latter part of the war, new members of the military intelligence service were conscripted, or they were transferred in from the 100th Infantry Battalion or the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, and we will start getting into those units' stories after a sponsor break. As we briefly mentioned earlier in the episode, President Roosevelt signed the Selective Training and Service Act on September 16th of 1940, and this was the nation's first peacetime draft legislation. It was passed in anticipation of American involvement in the war. This act required all men between the ages of 26 and 35 who were living in the United States to register for the draft starting on October 16th of that year. People were also enlisting, including significant numbers of Japanese Americans living in the territory of Hawaii, where almost 40% of the population was of Japanese descent. Thousands of Nisei living in Hawaii joined the Hawaii National Guard. By late 1941, roughly half of the 298th and 299th regiments of the Hawaii National Guard were Japanese American men. There were also many Nisei among the Reserve Officers Training Corps at the University of Hawaii. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, some of these men were the first ones on the scene. 
The ROTC cadets were ordered to report for, report for duty. In the afternoon of the attack, they were invited to join the Hawaii Territorial Guard. The HTG had been formed to replace the local work of the Hawaii National Guard, which had been ordered to active service or federalized for the war effort. Many of the 2nd Battalion of the 298th Infantry of the National Guard were on duty in Oahu when the attack happened, and they actually witnessed the attack on Pearl Harbor. All of these men immediately came under suspicion because of their Japanese ancestry. For three days after the attack, the National Guardsmen were disarmed and put to work doing things like digging trenches and stringing barbed wire while under guard. Although their weapons and ammunition were later returned, they spent most of the next few months doing manual labor and construction in the Hawaiian Islands. Then, on January 5, 1942, the War Department issued a directive that classified Japanese-American men as 4C, or aliens not acceptable to the armed forces, even though they were citizens of the United States and even though there were Japanese-Americans already serving in the military, and there had been since the late 19th century. At about the same time, commanders were giving the option to either discharge Japanese soldiers who were already reporting to them or to reassign them to so-called harmless duties. More than 600 Japanese-American soldiers who were already serving at that time were discharged, most of them honorably, and others were sent to Camp Robinson, Arkansas, where they were assigned to do menial labor. On January 21, 1942, General Delos Emmons, who had become Hawaii's military governor when it was placed under martial law, ordered the HTG to be disbanded. A day later, it had reformed without its former Nisei members, effectively excluding them from serving. The next month, these ousted members, along with other Nisei, went on to form the Varsity Victory Volunteers, or Triple V. The Triple V volunteered to do manual labor for the military, which included rock breaking, road resurfacing, and assembling prefabricated buildings and furniture. They also cooked for military units, and they arranged all kinds of community involvement, from buying war bonds to donating blood, and they participated in all these efforts themselves. On February 19th of that year, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which was the first of several actions paving the way for the mass removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans from the west coast of the United States. We mentioned that briefly before the break. We're not going to go over all the details because there's a two-part podcast on this in the recent archive. But more than 100,000 Japanese Americans were held in concentration camps for years. About two-thirds of the people who were incarcerated were citizens of the United States, and more than half of them were children. In Hawaii, where we're talking about right now, the Japanese population was too large to incarcerate everyone. So while there were people who were incarcerated, everyone else was subject to things like really strict curfews, movement restrictions, and the closure of all Japanese-language schools. Like, Hawaii was under martial law, and to some extent, some of this affected everyone, but the restrictions on Japanese-Americans were a lot more strict. Simultaneously, the United States still had thousands of Japanese-Americans serving in the National Guard and didn't quite know what to do about it. General Emmons and General George Marshall were convinced that they were a massive security risk, especially after receiving intelligence reports that the Japanese Navy was headed toward nearby Midway Atoll. So they transferred all Nisei personnel out of the Hawaii National Guard and into a newly created Hawaiian Provisional Infantry Battalion. 
This battalion, made up of 1,406 enlistees and about 30 officers, about half of whom were white, was secretly sent to the mainland on June 5, 1942. People may wonder whether the Niihau incident that had happened uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor was part of this. That really comes up a lot more often today with people trying to, like, retroactively justify Executive Order 9066 than it was an actual massive concern of people at the time. It was, like, a much... There was a lot more going on that was not about that one incident. After arriving in San Francisco, California, on June 5th, 1942, the... Provisional Infantry Battalion was designated the 100th Infantry Infantry Battalion separate. That separate signified that they were essentially on their own. The 100th wasn't connected to any other units. They didn't have a parent company that they were reporting up through. They were sent to train at Camp McCoy in Wisconsin, with the men divided up among three different trains traveling along three separate routes for the sake of secrecy. In January of 1943, they moved to Camp Shelby in Mississippi for further training, in part because the military still hadn't figured out what to do with them. The men had experienced some racism in Wisconsin, including the white officers who were criticized and ridiculed for their support of the Japanese troops. But for most of them, Mississippi was their first experience with the racial segregation that was entrenched in the American South. And they occupied an odd place in that system. They were typically considered white in terms of being able to access things like restrooms and restaurants. But at the same time, they were definitely not white. And not far away, other Japanese Americans were being held in concentration camps under armed guard. Yeah, this was the first time most of them had been in that type of segregated environment. It was also the first time that a lot of the people that were living in this part of the country had seen a lot of Japanese Americans. Like, there was a whole unfamiliarity with one another's uh, social norms. And then, as we have discussed on the podcast before, race is a social construct. (laughs) It's not a thing... (laughs) Like, it's not a biological imperative. And the Japanese uh, trainees at this point were in this nebulous space that was, like, with outside of the bounds of, of what had been entrenched in the South for so long. After spending about four times as normal in training, and this in a wartime atmosphere where people were being rushed to the front without a lot of training... The 100th Infantry Battalion finally left for North Africa on August 21st, 1943. Before they left, they chose Remember Pearl Harbor as their motto. Once they arrived in Africa, their initial assignment was to stay in Algeria and guard German prisoners of war. But their commanding officer insisted that they be allowed to join the force that was advancing through Italy. They were allowed to do so, resulting in them becoming part of an advance guard as the Allies moved northward and facing enormous casualties. When they arrived in Italy, the 100th had 1,300 men. After taking Monte Cassino to the southeast of Rome, only 600 were still ready for combat. As a result of these massive numbers of casualties, the 100th Infantry Battalion was soon nicknamed the Purple Heart Battalion, and it needed replacements for all those killed and wounded members. Since it was a segregated unit, those replacements had to be Japanese-Americans, and they came from the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. We will get to their story after another quick sponsor break. (music) 
As we mentioned earlier in the show, the War Department directed that all Japanese Americans be classified 4C, or aliens not acceptable to the armed forces, on January 5th of 1942. And that uh, direction stayed in place for more than a year. On January 29th, 1943, the Secretary of War issued a press release that described the right to serve in the military as one belonging to every citizen, regarding, uh, regardless of their national origin. And this was the first step in reversing the policy that had barred Japanese Americans from enlisting. Remember, the 100th were all people that had been in the National Guard before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then there was this long period where Japanese Americans were not allowed to enlist. The next step was to create a segregated unit for those newly eligible Japanese soldiers. This unit was the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was activated on February 1st, 1943. The 442nd incorporated the 522nd Artillery Battalion, the 232nd Combat Engineers Company, along with an anti-tank company, a cannon company, a medical company, and the 206th Army Ground Forces Band. This decision to allow to allow Japanese Americans into the military came about after months of advocacy on the part of civil rights organizations and Japanese Americans themselves, particularly the Japanese American Citizens League. The existence and the diligent work of the Triple V, remember those were the people that had been kicked out of the Hawaii Territorial Guard and responded to that by volunteering to do manual labor for the Army, uh, was brought up as evidence that Nisei were loyal Americans who should be allowed to serve. The nation of Japan was also using the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans in its propaganda, basically using that as evidence that the United States was targeting Japan because of its race. So allowing Japanese service members was kind of a PR move. All of this together influenced the decision to start allowing Nisei to enlist and serve. And this service was, at least in the beginning, voluntary because Japanese Americans were allowed into the military, but they were still excluded from the draft. These volunteers were to come from both Hawaii and from the concentration camps where the Japanese American population of the West Coast had been incarcerated for about a year. And the response from those two places for, to the call for volunteers was completely different. In Hawaii, where most of the Japanese population had not been subject to mass incarceration, the response was huge. A call went out for 1,500 Japanese Americans to enlist, and more than 10,000 volunteered. Many Nisei men were eager to serve and eager to demonstrate their loyalty to the United States. The Triple V disbanded as most of its members joined the service. But that was, overall, not how a lot of people in the camps felt about it. They had been incarcerated for more than a year under the blanket suspicion that they were a threat to the country, and now that same country that had been incarcerating them was asking them to risk their lives in its service. Another issue in the camps was a loyalty questionnaire, more formally known as the Application for Leave Clearance, that the War Department and War Relocation Authority required adults to fill out starting in February of 1943. We talked about this questionnaire more in our two-part episode on Executive Order 9066, but in general, it was viewed with intense suspicion. It included questions about willingness to serve in the military, which some people were afraid would commit them to serving. 
Another question asked people to forswear their allegiance to the emperor of Japan, but many of the people taking it had no such allegiance to forswear, and this contributed to the suspicion about the idea of joining the military. When the 442nd began training at Camp Shelby on March 23, 1943, there were 2,686 volunteers from Hawaii and about 1,500 from the mainland. The 100th Battalion was actually still training at Camp Shelby as well, and a lot of them knew the recruits from Hawaii. So they were, made a lot of friendly connections from reconnecting with old friends. At first, there was a stark division between the new recruits from Hawaii and the ones from the continental U.S. The soldiers from Hawaii were nicknamed Buddha Heads. There are a couple different theories about the origin of this name. It might have been a reference to the Buddhist religion that many of them followed, or it might have come from the Hawaiian word for pig because they were stubborn. The Buddha heads gave the recruits from the continental U.S. the disparaging nickname Katonks, which was supposedly from the sound their heads made when hitting the concrete. As that nickname suggests, there were a lot of fights, and many of them were instigated by the Buddha heads. In general, the troops from Hawaii thought that the troops from the continental U.S. were stuck up and too serious and too worried about what other people thought about them. And then the troops from the continental part of the country thought that the troops from Hawaii were loud and coarse and ignorant. There were also language barriers. Many of the troops from the continental U.S. spoke standard English and might also speak Japanese, while a lot of the troops from Hawaii were speaking Hawaii Creole, which people in Hawaii often call pidgin. The two groups were so at odds with each other that officers worried that they would never be able to work together. Numerous accounts report that what finally brought the men together was several recruits of Hawaii visiting the concentration camps that were nearby in Arkansas. Before that point, the Hawaiian recruits hadn't understood what conditions at those camps were like or what it really meant to be incarcerated there. In the words of Daniel Inouye, who would later become a U.S. senator from Hawaii, quote, Overnight, the situation in Camp Shelby changed because the word went out like wildfire. The experiment worked. I went back and said, I got to tell you guys about these mainlanders. You won't believe what I'm going to tell you. And this must have gone on in every hut throughout the camp. The next day, you thought you were visiting a new regiment. We were blood brothers. The regiment was not formed when we volunteered, nor when we arrived at Camp Shelby. It was formed after this visit. In late 1943 and early 1944, Members of the 442nd's 1st Infantry Battalion were leaving Camp Shelby to replenish the 100th in Italy. As we'd said before, uh, earlier in the show, they had been experiencing huge casualties. By the time the rest of the 442nd was ready to depart on May 1st, 1944, the 1st Infantry Battalion was nearly depleted. The rest stayed behind to help train the next wave of men. When the 442nd and the 100th met up in Italy, the 100th Battalion took the place of the 442nd's 1st Battalion. Because the 100th had been serving with such distinction so far in their time in Europe, they were allowed to keep their original name, which meant that the 442nd's Infantry Battalions were the 100th, the 2nd, and the 3rd. After incorporating the 100th Battalion, the 442nd spearheaded the 5th Army's push toward Rome in 1944. Like the 100th, they fought with immense valor and developed a reputation that was befitting their motto of go for broke. 
The, their most famous and most devastating engagement took place in October of 1944. The 141st Regiment of the 36th Infantry Division, which were originally part of the Texas National Guard, was deep in the woods of the Vosges Mountains and had been surrounded by German troops. Major General John Dalquist ordered the 442nd to go rescue them, even though they were supposed to be recovering from intense fighting that they had participated in while liberating the towns of Bruyere and Bifontaine. And the 442nd did rescue the 141st, but they incurred heavy losses while doing it. Most of the fighting took place in dense woods and freezing weather, with visibility affected by heavy fog and freezing rain. Reaching the 141st required five days and nights of nonstop combat, and in the end, more men were killed from the 442nd than rescued from the 141st. The 442nd saw 800 casualties and 121 deaths while rescuing 211 men. Dalquist has actually been criticized for exactly one of the things that people in the camps were afraid would happen if they joined the military, and that was for seeing the 442nd as expendable and for forcing them into really lethal situations that would never have been demanded of white soldiers. Many of these and other losses were filled through conscription. The draft reopened for Japanese men on January 20th, 1944. As had been true for the idea of volunteering for the 442nd, the reinstatement of the draft for Japanese men was enormously controversial, particularly in the camps. Although many men did report after being drafted, there were draft-resistance protests at nearly all of the camps, with hundreds of men serving time in federal prison for it. About a third of the draft resistors came from Poston, Arizona, which was the largest camp, with Hart Mountain having the most per capita. Yeah, go back to that loyalty questionnaire for a minute. People that answered no to both questions about serving in the military and for swearing loyalty to the emperor were nicknamed the No-No Boys. And a lot of times the No-No Boys get conflated with the draft resistors. Like, there were surely many people that answered no to both questions among the draft resistors, but they're sort of two different but interconnecting groups. More than half of the eligible Nisei men served in the 100th or the 442nd during World War II. That was about 22,000 men in total. Together, these two units served in seven major military campaigns in Europe. They became the most highly decorated unit of their size and length of service in in American military history. Members received thousands of Purple Hearts, 29 Distinguished Service Crosses, 588 silver stars, and more than 4,000 bronze stars. The unit itself earned seven distinguished unit citations, and individual members also earned 21 Congressional Medals of Honor. 19,000 Japanese-American World War II soldiers were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal on November 2nd of 2011. On July 15, 1946, during a review of the 442nd, President Harry Truman said, quote, you fought the enemy abroad and prejudice at home and you won. But this wasn't exactly so. As was true of the Japanese civilians who had been incarcerated during part of the war, returning Japanese-American veterans found themselves to be the targets of discrimination and prejudice. This was particularly true among the veterans from the continental U.S. who were scattered around the country. 
The situation was somewhat different in Hawaii, where thousands of veterans were living much closer together and where, like we said earlier, 40% of the population was of Japanese descent. In Hawaii, Japanese veterans made a lot of use of the GI Bill, which is still on my list for a future episode, and they became an increasingly active part of its society and government. Hawaii had been working towards statehood for decades before the war, which is its own complex story. It's been touched on a little bit in previous episodes, but, like, the statehood battle was, it went on for ages. And territorial delegate delegate Joe Farrington reintroduced the subject again after the war was over. But the Senate was really opposed to the idea and just didn't vote on several statehood measures that had previously been passed by the House. In the end, the 442nd's valor and rescue of the lost battalion became one of the factors that swayed the Senate in support of admitting Hawaii as a state. One of the things that comes up a lot when talking about these, uh, the 100th and the 442nd, is the idea that they were all so dedicated to prove to the rest of the country that they were loyal citizens and that they could be trusted and did not need to be feared that that was um, partially responsible for how so highly decorated their unit was. And then simultaneously with that is the fact that they were often being put into situations that were inherently more dangerous. And so that also was playing a part in all of that. Um, There is a painting representing the battle where they rescued the lost battalion that is apparently hanging on a lot of officers' offices in various military sites around the country because it is so emblematic of the dedication and valor that soldiers are uh, expected to adhere to. That is kind of a heavy story. It is. But super important, and I'm really glad that you picked this one. Yeah, I I have been... Things I've been meaning to do for a year could be a whole... (laughs) category of episodes. But by the time Um, we got through them, we would then have more things we had been meaning to do for a year while we worked on So many. There's no win. I also have plenty of things that I've been meaning to do for a lot longer than a year. I probably still have things that I've been meaning to do since you and I came on the show in 2013. Oh, yeah. Do you, like me, have a folder that are, like, barely started? Yep. They're, like, things that I have a few hundred words written about, and I'm like, I'll come back to it. (laughs) Yeah, I more have I have more more have folders of research, but like the actual outline is not started yet. Yeah. Do you have listener mail is my follow-up I question. I do. This is actually a listener Facebook post, which tells you how charmed I am by it because it is rare for me to go try to find something somebody previously said on Facebook because it is much easier to search the email uh, than to scroll through Facebook. So this is from Josh. Josh says... I just finished listening to your two-parter on Wendell Scott and loved it. He sounds like he was an amazing fellow. I'm a car guy and don't really follow NASCAR all that much now, but have in the past. I actually had heard of Wendell Scott, but unfortunately, not until relatively recently. In Disney's Cars 3, Lightning McQueen ends up meeting some legendary racers from the early days of the sport, and one of them was inspired by Wendell Scott. As Disney slash Pixar is good for, they did their homework, and all the old-timers are based on actual drivers. There's a truck named Smokey, who was inspired by legendary mechanic and previous Car Stuff, car stuff episode subject Smokey Eunuch, and a uh, 1940 Ford Coupe named Junior Moon, who was inspired and actually voiced by Junior Johnson, who was mentioned in your piece on Wendell Scott. 
and looking into these cars, these two, these two names that I had heard of, the other two I had not at the time, character Rivers Scott was inspired by Wendell Scott, the aforementioned first African-American to race in NASCAR's top tier. And character Louise Nash was inspired by Louise Smith, who was one of the first women to race in NASCAR. I was glad to see them, including homages to lesser-known but equally important folks from the history of motorsports. Thank you so much, Josh. I have only seen the first Cars movie and not any subsequent Cars movies. I had no idea that there was a car in one of those movies that was patterned after Wendell Scott. Thank you so much. Either. I saw the second one, but I have not yet seen the third one. So we were both in the dark. We super were. (laughs) So thank you so much. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Missed in History. Our Twitter and our Instagram and our Pinterest are all also at the name Missed in History. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find searchable archive of all the episodes we have ever done. You will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have done, which includes links to all the research that we used. And you can find our show and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you find podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 